0: dag og velkommen til langsomme samtaler der sætter verden sammen mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg Den afrikanske klimaaktivist Elizabeth Wa fik uden sammenligning det største bifald overhovedet ved COP 26 i Glasgow Man kan roligt sige, at hun erobrede klimakonferencens moralske momentum. Hun talte til det højeste i alle de tilstedeværende, og hun talte et sted fra, som måske var det allerværste. Elizabeth Rathuti var nemlig blevet bedt om at holde åbningstalen på den allerførste dag. Hun stod foran nogle af verdens mægtigste mænd og kvinder. Hun stod foran verdens politiske og økonomiske og organisatoriske ledere, Og hun havde 6 minutter til at fortælle dem hvorfor de skulle gøre noget for at forhindre de værste effekter af klimakrisen.
1: Please open your hearts. If you allow yourself to feel it, the heartbreak and the injustice is hard to bear.
0: Og man kunne forestille sig at hun der kommer fra den del af verden der er ramt, samtidig med at de har allermindst ansvar ville være rasende. At hun ville stille sig op og være vred og beskylde os for at have svigtet hende, og beskylde os for at være ligeglade, og beskylde os for at have fortsat nogle udledninger, hvor vi godt kendte skadeeffekterne, men fordi de største ikke var hos os selv, så fortsatte vi alligevel. Man kunne godt forestille sig, at Elisabeth Wathuti var vred, og hun er også meget vred, men det var slet ikke sådan, hun talte. Hun sagde i talen, Please open your heart.
1: I believe in our human capacity to care deeply and to act collectively. I believe in our ability to do what is right if we let ourselves feel it in our hearts. So for these next 2 weeks, let us feel it in our hearts.
0: Don't say Hvis I lytter med jeres følelser til det, jeg fortæller jer om, hvordan der er i mit land, så vil I finde ud af, at I kan ikke bære det. Og på en eller anden måde var det en ny modstandsgestus eller genopdagelse af en gammel modstandsgestus, som Elisabeth Warfuthiv viste os alle sammen der, nemlig at tale til medfølelsen.
1: The children cannot live on words and empty promises. They are waiting for you to act. Please open your hearts and then act.
0: Og det er også et budskab om klimakrisen og vores viden om det. For det første er klimakrisen ikke bare en krise i naturen og i vores demokratier. Det er også en krise i vores følelsesliv. For for overhovedet at kunne leve med det ansvar, vi har for andre menneskers liv, så bliver man nødt til at lukke af for de følelser engang imellem. Og det er det, hun sagde. Alt det, I plejer at lukke for. Det skal åbne for igen nu. For det andet udstillede hun også, at spørgsmålet ikke er, om man kender til klimakrisens årsager og effekter. Det handler ikke om, man ved det eller ej. Den store kamp står ikke mellem erkendelse og fornækkelse. Det helt afgørende spørgsmål er, hvordan man ved det. Ved man det som grafer? Eller ved man det med sit hjerte som noget, der rammer mennesker på en måde, som man overhovedet ikke kan bære? For mange af Elizabeth efter COP26 i Glasgow blevet en helt og et forbillede for protestbevægelser. Der er flere af dem, jeg har talt med det seneste halve år af er storartede, intellektuelle tænkere forskere, som har fremhævet netop den tale som forbillede for, hvordan man skal forholde sig til klimakrisen. Derfor er det en kæmpe fornøjelse for mig, at jeg for et par uger siden fik lejlighed til at tale med Elisabeth Wathuti. Det var inden krigen i Ukraine gik i gang, men dramaet er ikke desto mindre akkurat lige så stort. Elizabeth Wathuti var med os fra Nairobi. God fornøjelse med samtalen. Jeg håber, I vil åbne jeres hjerter og forstå, at det handler ikke kun om at åbne over for hende, men også over for os selv.
2: Vi been discussing for years how we should appeal to other people about climate change. And, you know, we've been trying to be very, very angry and we've been trying to be hopeful and we've been trying to be frustrated and we've been trying to make people feel guilty. You know, we tried everything because it's not about if you know uh, what's going on. It's about how you know it. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about how this speech came about for you?
1: I would say I'm one of the young people who has felt the pain of speaking and never feeling hard, and that is when I realized that actually the world is facing a bigger crisis, and that is a crisis of listening and a crisis of feeling, because if you do not listen, you will not be able to feel the pain and the heartbreaks and the injustices caused by the climate crisis and that is why I thought maybe it would be better to appeal directly to people's hearts to be able to first listen and then be able to feel all these injustices and then when we listen and feel then we just develop a natural call to action and for me that's how I got into activism. It was as a result of feeling the injustices that we have caused to nature. It was as a result of Seeing the natural world that my friends and I knew as children changing completely before my eyes and feeling angry and also feeling frustrated. But that did not stop at that. It also gave me a hunger to want to do something about these challenges. And so I think it's really important that we directly appeal to people's hearts so that we can act from a place of love and compassion.
2: Yeah, after having heard and watched your speech several times, I realized that is a very efficient, but it must also, you know. Have taken a lot of courage for you to go up there and even, you know, ask for a moment of silence.
1: Yes, it was definitely not anything easy to do. And the whole time when I was writing this speech, I definitely kept asking myself what words are going to move the word leaders or what action is going to move the word leaders. And I also kept it in my heart the fact that there are millions of people in my country that I have left and there is. declaration of drought as a national disaster and people need action right now and they cannot depend on words and decisions that take 20 30 or 50 years to be implemented they need action right now and so this had to be how do we get people to actually act from that place of listening and finding it in themselves to feel all these injustices Because what happens when you feel the injustices, you are greatly disturbed. And when you're greatly disturbed, you cannot sit back and do nothing. You will definitely be moved to take an action step. And that is what we are missing right now when it comes to taking urgent action to address the climate and ecological crisis.
2: I thought it was very interesting to watch the speech and, and then see you and then the world leaders. Uh, Because uh, we were very emotionally struck by by your speech and especially when you said if you listen with your emotions, then you understand that you cannot bear it. And it felt absolutely unbearable at the moment. But what was the response that you saw in the audience when you were speaking?
1: I would say when you hold a space for emotional response, you allow the presence of those people who are not there. You allow the presence of the challenges that we're talking about, we're talking about impacts and there are people right now who are facing these impacts. And so holding that space for emotional response is important so that people can connect with the challenges that are happening. And I think it was really heavy for me to even hold that moment of silence And before I went on stage, I kept asking myself whether they will hold the silence because it's one thing to get people to a moment of silence, but it's another to get them to keep and hold the silence. But they actually did. And every time I kept looking around the room and I was definitely struck because they actually held the silence. And there was so much silence in the room at that time. And even after I left the Podium. There were so many people talking about how I did make them open their hearts. And I kept on with the message, telling people that you have to keep reminding yourself because opening your heart is not something that you learn through a six minute speech. It has to be a practice that you have to keep reminding yourselves every day. And then once you Are that person who actually connects directly with people then you can be able to appeal to others to also act from that place of an open heart and from that place of love and compassion for other people
2: it was almost like a song when you have this refrain please open your heart Uh, and it was almost like you know you we felt like singing along and saying it, it 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 it, it, to others that you kind of spread the, the message through re- repeating it like that. So that was kind of meant for that.
1: Definitely. I had it about four times in my speech, but I wanted the message to sink in because despite all the things that I said in that speech, that's the message that I wanted people to live with. Please open your hearts. That was my main call to action. And so I had to keep repeating it every time until it would sink into any person who was listening to that speech.
2: And I thought it was very funny because first, or very moving, I thought that they should open their hearts. You know, that you are talking to business leaders and political leaders, and I thought they should open their heart. And then I realized, it took me a kind of a to realize that it was for me as well. You know, that it was, for, that it was mm-hmm. not just for people in power, that it was for, for everyone as well
1: exactly it was a message for every person who was listening as well at that time I was definitely speaking to the world leaders and especially because I wanted them to make the right decisions for the next two weeks at COP26 and I remember insisting the decisions that they make will determine whether the children will have food and water and whether the rains will return to our land and whether the people who are suffering from the climate crisis impacts right now will have their lives and livelihoods saved and i wanted them to go out there in those conference rooms those negotiations rooms and make the right decisions with open hearts because if you go to those negotiation rooms with personal interests you know country specific interests without the interests of people who are facing the impacts of climate change right now it's very impossible for them to agree on an outcome that actually supports the needs of people who are facing the crisis right now. And it was also an appeal for everyone else who was listening, because right now we are out of COP26, we are heading to COP27. What happens between Right now and the next COP is what determines whether we are making a difference or not, and it is the people with the open hearts will make that change happen. And even the leaders, whatever they promised at COP26, if they are to achieve any of that, it has to come with so much pressure, and this pressure will come from the people who already understand, feel it in themselves and have the open hearts, and I believe it's possible because I totally and every time believe in that human capacity of acting deeply because even if you appeal to people to act if the will to act is not coming from deep within it's almost impossible for them to do anything and step out of their comfort zones and do what is supposed to be done
2: And, and I think this way of addressing people also gives people the opportunity to become better persons through fighting climate change and you know there's a lot of climate change invites a lot of cynicism that you know this problem is too big for me to deal with you know I can't handle this problem so I'd rather not talk about it and I think especially to be honest with you and we're not feeling the impact of climate change here in Denmark you know it's not like if my kids they're 16 and 19 if they were telling the stories about their lives and their opportunities that it would affect, that, that they're affected directly by, it. you know, they dream about it, they think about it, their future, it's a cloud in their, their future, but they're not affected by it. So I think for us, there is always the temptation to cynicism, say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. So I think to that extent, it was an important speech as well, that it allowed us to become better persons
1: definitely and you realize that most of these stories are not being told out there people are not talking about what is happening right now because for most of the people around the world especially in countries like mine in kenya they're not waiting for the climate crisis impacts to hit they are living the impacts each and every day and communicating this kind of messages to people to understand that just because it's not happening where you are it doesn't mean that it's not happening at all there are people that have to deal with the worst impacts, then that's what is important. And also communicating how these people are responding because they are not just sitting back and choosing to be victims. They are also stepping up and taking up solutions to be able to deal with the worst impacts. And they're taking up solutions to even reduce the losses and damages that come as a result of this crisis. You became a
2: climate activist very, very early. Uh, I, I, I read that you were seven when you started planting trees. How did you personally become involved with the climate activism?
1: Well, I have grown and uh, lived in the most forested region in Kenya. That's my bad place. And it's also the bad place to the late Professor Angari Mathai. And during the time when she was the member of parliament, I was only seven years old, and she was mobilizing women to start up tree nurseries and grow trees in their farmlands. If you visit my county today, you will realize there are so many trees. It looks almost like a forest, but those are people's farms that are full of beautiful trees. And so that's when I got a chance to plant my first tree at the age of seven in primary school. And I really also was struck by spending so much time out in the bushes and close to clean streams, even seeing butterflies and birds, things that are almost hard to see nowadays. And also along the way, I got to connect with nature directly and uh, getting to connect with nature also made me love nature. And by loving nature, I was also learning that I could grow things, red trees, and also I was learning that I was also starting to feel the pain of nature caused by environmental degradation. And that is why at some point, one of these beautiful forests that I loved so much as a child, when I walked in there at some point to check on how the trees were doing, and I found tree logs and tree stumps, And for me, I felt really sad and heartbroken at the, at the same time because I could not understand why anyone would destroy such a beautiful ecosystem. And that is when I realized that I could turn my anger into a hunger to want to do something, like uh, you know, to do something uh, to address challenges like deforestation and the climate crisis. And so I kept on forming environmental clubs even in my high school. And when I went to the university, I definitely knew that I wanted to be an environmentalist. And so I also took up a course in environmental studies. I studied bachelor's degree in environmental studies and community development. And while at the university, that's when I founded my own organization, the Green Generation Initiative, to nurture young people to be environmentally conscious and to have that strong love for nature. And this is all because I could realize the change in mindset and the process that it took me from being a young girl who loved nature, who loved spending time in trees, to a young girl who really felt sad seeing people cutting down trees or throwing trash out of car windows. And now to, uh, you know, to a young climate activist wants to make a difference and address all these challenges in one way or another through this initiative and also through being a voice on different global platforms to speak up for frontline communities whose voices are often not being heard.
2: So when I look at kids growing up here in Denmark, they all feel you know, powerless about climate change. You know, you realize this is happening and you think of the scale that it's happening at and it's very hard to tell them that I'm sure we'll be all right. I try to teach them all the time that the best way to live with it is doing something, doing something that has concrete results and that brings people together. But but still, you know, it's something that when you're involved with it, you have to face the dire consequences in the in the long term H- how did you keep up hope and keep on believing that it was uh, that, that it was possible to make a difference
1: I would say I held on to the love that I had for nature because when you hold on to hoping that the future is going to be brighter or you hold on to hope that the leaders are going to make a difference you hold on to hope that somebody else will do it then At the end of the day, you will be disappointed, there's going to be frustrations, but when you hold on to the love for the planet, the love for nature, the love for the people, then that is what gives me that energy to keep moving on, despite the challenges that are happening right now. And I would say it has been the strongest factor for me and the strongest for for my passion for the environment, because then it keeps me and it keeps reminding me why I'm doing this work, why I am in this space. And uh, for many young people who are facing eco-anxiety at the moment, and it's really sad to always see the statistics from Abbas that 75% of young people are afraid of the future due to climate change. And of course, when you have these feelings of eco-anxiety, As to some extent, the young people would feel as though they cannot be able to do too much. And that is when I also hold on to stories like the hummingbird that Professor Angara Mathai always told. And uh, this was about a huge forest that was on fire and, of course, the other animals are standing on the sides of the river and feeling hopeless and helpless because They think that the house is going down to the drain and there's nothing that they can do except from this tiny little hummingbird that decides that it was going to do something. So it picks a drop of water from the stream and flies back and forth, back and forth a million times. And it has a tiny beak. It cannot be able to draw so much water. And this is a time when... The other animals are asking this bird, What can you do? You're just a tiny bird with a tiny beak. Your wings are too little. What can you do? But what this hummingbird told the other animals is one thing that I strongly hold on to every other time. So it looks at the other animals and says, I am doing the best that I can. I love this forest and I am doing the best that I can. And holding on to that love for nature, that love for the forest, that love for the planet and the people, and then doing the best that you can. I think to me that is the strongest thing that would keep anyone going in activism because that is all that matters because then all our acts multiplied by millions of us are going to end up making that huge difference for as long as what you're doing is the best you can at your capacity because the best that I can is possibly not the best that a president can do. The president can do much more. They have a huge capacity. They have much more resources than I can. So looking at what you're doing as the best that you can is I think what really matters when it comes to every person making a difference.
2: That's a beautiful story. I'll remind you to pass that on uh, as well. But I think there's also the benefit of the method of planting trees that that you contribute to a very large battle the best that that, that you can. But you also see some concrete benefits. And I read somewhere that people are acting actually living from some of the trees that you've been planting, that that they're actually getting fruit. So you have some tangible progress in people's everyday life from planting trees.
1: Absolutely. When I founded the Green Generation Initiative, I began with the symbol of a tree because it's also the symbol of a tree that got me to love nature and love being in conservation. And I started a campaign that I dubbed Adopt a Tree campaign to make sure that every child in every school in my country would get a chance to plant and adopt a tree each in their school compound. And this is also because I realized the rising rate of deforestation. And also I realized that so many people were trying to just plant trees, forgetting that these trees need to grow up to maturity. There is a process. It's not just putting the tree in there and going away and hoping that it's going to somehow survive. There's a process that tree needs tender care. It needs love for it to be able to grow up to maturity. And that is why this campaign was really important. And also getting children to connect with the tree to see a seed growing to a tree seedling and growing to a mighty tree that's a growth process for the child to have that love and connection for nature and for me that is how i envisioned it that we are not only increasing the forest cover in my country we are not only helping the children grow their own food but we are also helping them connect with the natural world by helping them co-create with nature you know by growing these trees up to maturity And of course, along the way, I also discovered that most of these children that we are working with are also greatly impacted by climate change, and especially when it comes to food insecurity. They have to go a whole day without a meal in school. And it's of course very impossible for a child to concentrate in their education if they don't have a meal. So we thought to ourselves, how can we make this tree growing project impact the lives of these children and that's when we started establishing food forest where we pick designated corners in the school compound and there we plant mixed species of fruit trees and this means that in and out of season there's going to be something nutritious for these children to eat at the end of the day and also this will supplement the school's feeding program and this has really supported uh so many children and we've also been able to nurture over 20,000 school going children. And right now we can account for over 30,000 tree ceilings that are growing to maturity. Because like I mentioned, impact is not how many you planted but how many you are able to grow up to maturity. And that to me is what I strongly hold on as the impact. And we've continued to focus on this initiative. And I think one of my main priorities for this year is actually scaling up the green generation initiative which I also talked about in my open your heart speech because this was to let people know that young people are not only influencing how others are responding to the climate crisis we are also working on solutions on the ground every day with our communities with children and trying to do the best that we can and all we need is for people to come in and support us and all we need is for people to do much more from their own capacity so that together we can be able to make a wider difference and so this year i'm greatly and hugely focusing on scaling up the green generation initiative and that is going to involve reaching more schools in my country and also making sure that we start up uh, eco projects where this food forest will be able to benefit more and more schools and also continue giving the young people that experiential learning while still working with the frontline communities and telling their stories because their stories need to be told as well they are not just you know, they've chosen not to be victims. They've chosen to step up and take up solutions. And this, the best way that the world can do is to join in hands in solidarity, support, and also make sure that everybody's doing the best that they can do.
2: What's it like when you're a young activist or you represent the youth, and and you're still young, and you're representing a, a youth movement? You know, on the one hand, there's something very, very important about for, for me and my generation, I'm 47 seeing, well, they, they actually believe, they're actually doing something, they're actually making others believe something that makes us aware of the enormity of, of the of, of the obligation. But on the other hand, I also at times feel that it's a little, that that is like older people are saying, well, you are the young generation, you are going to save us, that there's kind of putting a responsibility on you instead of you putting responsibility on the others.
1: So I think that's where we definitely go wrong because there's something that I mentioned just recently and I did post it on my social media platforms that in order to change everything we will need everyone, but again. That statement also implies that there are people that have a wider and huge responsibility to do as compared to others. And this work should not only be left to a small specific group of people, to a group of maybe young activists, to a group of people whose mandate is to focus on environmental conservation issues. This should be everyone's work. But again, we have to be accountable and we have to ensure that there's a lot of responsibility. It's the same way with the fact that Africa contributes less than 5% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. And Africa is also the same continent that is facing the worst impacts of the climate crisis. So we cannot forget the aspect of historical emissions that you know, that are bringing the much of these impacts of the African continent. So when it comes to the responsibility, again, it's also the responsibility of uh, the countries that have emitted the most to make sure that they're doing most of the work, that there is proper climate finance to countries that are struggling to address the impacts and uh, support their people who are currently facing these impacts. And also, young people have for a long time been called the leaders of tomorrow, but clearly we are leading today. And uh, even from using our voices and reminding leaders what should be done, because that should not be the case. And sometimes it's so uncertain that uh, you find leaders telling young people that you know, they should wait until they're a certain age to take up their position so that they can do what should be done. But honestly, there is no time to wait for, you know, action to take place because these are things that are urgently needed. And it's the responsibility of those who are in those positions right now to do what must be done because we are doing most of the work despite the fact that we should not even be the ones doing all this work. But we are doing it because we envision a livable world and a safe future. And we understand that action cannot wait. And we also understand that if we do not step up, maybe nobody else will. And that's why you find that the youth movement is stepping up so hugely, taking up leadership because we understand that this is about our future. Most of the people making the decisions today and putting up deadlines for 2060 might not even be there by 2060. But the children of today, the generations that are yet to be born, will be the ones who will live longer with those consequences. And that is why most of the young people have chosen to definitely take up leadership. So we are not leaders of tomorrow. But again, this responsibility should not be left on the children and the young people. And to just give a good example, the children I'm working with every day are inspired. They are growing their own food. They are cleaning the air. They are beautifying their own schools. And on one side of the school compounds, they're definitely planting trees. They're doing so much work for the environment. But their efforts are still being undermined, because on the other side of the school compound, beyond the borders, they still see corporations investing hugely on fossil fuels. They still see uh, big ecosystems being destroyed, deforestation. You know, This is a way in which to show that our efforts are not in harmony. There is a population doing the work, and there's a population that is undermining the work of those who are taking up leadership. So if we have to change everything, we will need everyone.
2: And we will do everything we can to take action and to pressure our leaders and those responsible here. And there's no doubt. And I think this is a common recognition, not unfortunately in the actions of COP26 or COP25 or COP24, that there's a huge responsibility in the global north that we emitted the most and we're not suffering the worst consequences of it. So now you're seeing some, especially here in Europe, you're seeing uh, countries are starting to invest in solar energy in Africa because, you know, in in Germany, they don't have a lot of sun, but you have a lot of sun in Africa. You see a lot of people saying, well, now is the time to invest in, in, in renewables in Africa. And I'm a bit ambivalent about it because on the one hand, of course, we should do everything we can to liberate ourselves from fossil fuels and also do everything we can to help other countries develop a sustainable energy infrastructure. But I was curious, how do you see this this foreign investment in renewable energies, this European strategies for investing in, in Africa? Do you see this as some kind of new energy imperialism or do you see this as some some real help?
1: I would say when we talk about foreign direct investment, I think one of the things to remind ourselves is the fact that Africa has got one of the most intact ecosystems still. But again, to some extent, the foreign direct investment still end up degrading some of these ecosystems that are existing. And if you look at the aspect of energy, I think we need to think a lot around energy transition because I come from a country that is 80% powered renewable, but still there's a population that has challenges with energy access. So when you talk about transitioning for developing countries, there's need for climate finance, because it goes without saying that if my country, for example, Kenya is supposed to get to 100% renewable, there's going to be need for climate finance to power every place, to make sure that everybody has equal access to energy. And uh, at the moment, there's still a problem because most of this climate finance is still in the form of pledges, it's still in the form of empty promises, it's still in the form of commitments. And that is not helping the developing country transition in any way. And when it comes to also transitioning timelines, I think the just transition is an issue that is not coming out so clearly in the outcomes because we definitely cannot have the same deadlines you know, as compared to a country that has had historical emissions. And for even most developing countries you find like i've said kenya is 80 percent renewable we do not have a coal power plant for example but there are countries right now that still continue to license new coal mines and and it's it's definitely not climate justice and if we're talking about climate justice it's also about the just transition the climate finance to make sure that this transition is smooth for everyone, including those who have least contributed. But again, I have mentioned about the huge responsibility from the North to make sure that this happens. Because if we are to ask countries in the global South, for example, to transition in few years time, it's not going to be possible if they do not have support from the North, because there's going to be need for climate finance for these countries to make sure that each and every, you know, country has got equal energy access. And despite the fact that we have these solutions, there is a huge power for solar power, for example, wind power, there's a huge opportunity and capacity for Africa to do all this. But this cannot be done without the support from the north. Because again, these are challenges being faced as a result of the climate crisis, hugely contributed due to historical emissions that are often left out in these conversations, people do not want to own up the aspect that are people that need to do much more than others. And I think if we can get to a point of agreeing on this aspect, then it's going to be easier for us to draw the line on just transition to make sure that at least there's that aspect of also the global south being able to have equal energy access and energy that is actually renewable, because it's definitely possible. And one thing that we have failed to do is we've also failed to see Africa as a solution to the climate crisis. Because when I say that Africa has a huge capacity for solar and wind, then that capacity should definitely be maximized on. But we have failed to realize that and uh, realize that huge opportunity that lies in making sure that there's a lot of renewable energy as well in the African continent. But I really strongly uh, keep pushing for a just transition because that is what climate justice looks like.
2: You had this uh, very, very inspiring appearance at COP26, but you also made it very clear that you were talking on behalf of a lot of people who were never heard and you were representing sufferings that are very very rarely part of the climate debate in the rich part of of the world so personally for you i'm i'm not of course it was successful at cop 26 but on the other hand cop 26 was a big failure when it came to loss and damage it was a big failure when it comes to just finding out how we should transfer the money that we promised back in 2009 which is like an absolute disgrace it's such an You know, this is like closing our hearts, not doing it. You know, so what was it like for you coming home from COP26?
1: I would say to a bigger extent, I was definitely grieving because my message was one message that we should open our hearts and make the right decisions and make the right decisions that also consider the present needs of people who are facing the worst impacts of the climate crisis right now. But I would say the COP26 outcome did not in any way represent the needs of the people who are facing the worst impacts of the climate crisis right now and that was the group that I heavily and hugely carried in my heart the whole way at COP26 trying to push for all these things because most of the things were just in promises and the mention of uh, you know the, the facing down of coal in the COP outcome and You know, people are saying it was a win, that it's the first time it's being mentioned, but facing down is not what's supposed to be done because we cannot talk about solving the climate crisis if the emissions still keep rising. And also we cannot say that we are having the people who are facing the worst impacts in our hearts and minds if we cannot, you know, create a separate facility for loss and damage, that is a present. People are facing so much loss and damage at the moment. And in fact, I think it was just Scotland that pledged support for loss and damage. Where were, you know, where were all the other countries? You know, most of the leaders, I think, for the two weeks were recognizing the gaps that exist, recognizing the gaps in emission, the gaps in finance. But what was failing is finding the leaders who are stepping up to fill those gaps, to take up leadership and say, this is what we are going to do. And I think that's why. I wouldn't say that I was pleased in any way with the COP26 outcome, because that was not the kind of outcome that I expected from being someone who comes from a community of people who are facing the worst impacts right now. They are not waiting for change to happen in two two years, not even in one year. They want things to begin happening right now. These are people who are facing a hunger crisis, they cannot be able to adapt to starvation or crop failure. These are things that need to be addressed at the moment. And so I think also to a bigger perspective, I was really moved by the people power that I saw at COP26. And I remember there was so much energy out of the blue zone as compared to in the blue zone, you know, people out in the streets demanding that the leaders make the right decisions and seeing indigenous communities and frontline communities being allowed to be on the lead of every march and protest that was taking place at the streets of Glasgow. So seeing all this solidarity from the civil society, the young people was really great. And I think these are the people who are showing what the real leadership looks like.
2: I think there's a moral question that is very hard for climate activists here in the global North. And we absolutely, do agree that it's a scandal that we haven't even reached an agreement on loss and damage, which is a premise for everything else we should do. And also a a scandal that we haven't lived up to our promises from 2009. But there's also a moral dilemma, which is, should we take responsibility for green transitions in other countries? Or is that kind of a, a new moral imperialism or should we say that we should help those who are making the the green transition and, and thus, you know, uh, kind of interfere in, in societies? We're, we're not everywhere you have stable institutions, not everywhere you have a- accountable governments. Do you understand this moral dilemma here from people who are definitely open their hearts to your speech?
1: I definitely understand. And I think to a bigger aspect, it shouldn't be a dilemma because we cannot close our eyes to the fact that we have to, you know, that emissions have to stop rising. So it's also about changing our current ways of living and changing our current ways of, you know, our current model of operation. And this is going to make sure that emissions will stop rising. And once you've halted the problem, then we have to also continue making sure that we are doing uh, much more. For example, in addition to stopping investments in fossil fuels, we also have to massively increase nature regeneration and make sure that all the remaining natural ecosystems continue to stay intact. So we cannot just say it's one solution and pack the other solution towards the end. All these things need to be done at the same time. And that's why I also keep insisting on the fact that we are facing a climate emergency and also we are also in an ecological crisis. And these are two sides of the same coin. So we cannot say that we're just, you know, we are funding projects in a certain country that is facing the worst impacts, but we continue a meeting on the other side. We cannot be supporting tree growing in a certain location, but we are still feeling deforestation on the other. I mean, that would be hypocrisy in terms of the real climate solutions. And the best thing to do is to make sure that we are we are fully into solving the climate crisis, and this means both halting emissions, supporting people who are facing the worst impacts, and then making sure that we are scaling up efforts, and especially efforts like nature-based solutions, efforts that support communities, because it's possible to have a green, clean, and resilient world. We just need to step up and open our hearts and understand how our actions today are impacting other people and then make the right choices that put people and our planet above profits. I think if we choose that line and angle, then we will be fully in the part of the solutions in solving the climate and ecological crisis. But if there is any choice or way of living or business model that is putting profits above people and planet, then that's where we are going wrong. But as long as what we are doing now puts people and a planet above profits, then that should be the right direction. So we cannot say that it's one solution and not the other. All these things have to be done.
2: Everybody must do everything they can at the same time. I have one last question for you. One good thing that came out of COP26 is that we're going to have a COP27 this year, again, where where we have to revisit the commitments and there will be a focus on on loss and damage. They promised that would be front and and centre. What should we expect? What are your hopes for COP27?
1: So one of the things that I would really wish to see at the COP happen is a COP27 that is inclusive, and a COP27 that has an outcome that supports the current needs and the present needs of Africa, the African continent, because it goes beyond having COP26 being, COP27 26 being COP being hosted in Africa to call it an African COP. We have to call it an African COP because there's full representation of the voices in Africa, full representation of the present needs of Africa and an outcome that supports the present needs of Africa. So it's not just about a country in Africa that is hosting the COP, that we call it an African COP. It has to go beyond that. It has to be a whole process that actually recognizes Africa as a solution and makes sure that the outcomes uh, support these present needs of Africa. And of course, a COP27 that would have an outcome that has a separate, tangible facility for loss and damage and, you know, real money, not in form of commitments and pledges that we have to wait for years and years until it's fulfilled. So it has to be a support that is actually tangible and not commitments, because I think at this point in time, we are tired of all the promises that, you know, empty promises, all the words and all these pledges. I think it's time for the leaders to show us what real action looks like at COP27 because then real action is not about making promises that are never fulfilled anyway. Real action is stepping up to fill the gaps that they all recognize exist and I think for a COP that is coming to Africa, I think this is an opportunity to redeem ourselves And also, this is not going to come again without pressure. So much has to change between now and the next COP. So we cannot sit back and wait for COP27. We have to keep putting pressure and making sure that our governments in every country around the world are doing what must be done. And also doing what was promised in the previous Cops and previous sessions, the Paris Agreement. All these things have not been fulfilled. So we cannot just sit back and wait for COP27. We have to put pressure and make sure that COP27 presents a COP that has real tangible solutions that are happening and not just words that will not help us solve the climate crisis.
2: I always think that the cops are where you show how far you've come but the real action is between the cops and that's where the hard work is and it's just like a global courtroom where you see this is how far we've come because we've been expecting actions from cops that never come so it's in between that we have to do the hard work. Elizabeth Wathuti, thank you so much. Your speech has been such an inspiration. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I promise you that we'll take your inspiration and we'll spread it around. You. Thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Det var min samtale med Elizabeth Warfoot i næste uge skal vi et helt andet sted hen. Der taler jeg med den 81 årige franske filosof Jacques Roncier som i otier har været et forbillede for frigørelses-tænkning, demokratitænkning, kritik af den gamle venstreorientering og åbning for nye måder at forestille os hinandens frihed på. Jacques Ranciere jeg taler ikke kun om hans værk, om frigørelse og lighed. Vi taler også om krigen, om invasionen, og hvorfor han mener, at det er en forlængelse af noget, der hele tiden har været i gang, og hvorfor vi skal huske på, at krig altid rammer de fattige hårdest, uanset om det er igennem direkte krigsførsel eller det er igennem sanktioner. Tak for nu. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge.